0: You're watching Global Trade This Week with Pete Mento and Doug Draper.
1: And here we are, another edition of Global Trade This Week. I am your co-host that is blending in nicely to my backdrop here. Uh, My name is Doug Draper. I'm coming to you from uh, Denver, Colorado. And uh, my partner in crime on the other side of the great United States is one Mr. Pete Mento, hanging out in... uh, Based on your background there, my friend, uh the great state of New Hampshire. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing good, bud. Yeah, I'm, I'm home. I'm uh, I'm heading to the West Coast later this week, but I am home. It's great, man. Where's Troy?
1: Uh it, he's all tied up. He had a rough, rough weekend, so he decided to stay off camera. So
0: he's taking today off. I can dig it, man. It's
1: got a case of the Mondays, Doug. I know. Hey, uh, um, you're going, um, you're coming out here to the west. I'm actually going to uh Pennsylvania tomorrow and traveling west to east I, I you know i don't travel as much as you do but god bless you just burn a whole day i'm leaving Damn. at 6 a.m like the plane takes off the ground at 6 a.m and i got to cut through because i'm going to uh, harrisburg Pennsylvania, which doesn't have a lot of directs and i don't land till like 2 30 yeah it's insane i i just um it just baffles me that you just burn a whole day
0: <laughs> yeah, the, the good news is when I head out that way, like I, even though I leave in the afternoon, I still get there. I mean, It's the middle of the night, but I can still get a good night's sleep and hit it. But then coming back, you do, you do waste it. You you leave in the afternoon, you get home at, at midnight, and and you're done. Your yeah. whole day's yeah. done. There's nothing yeah. you can do about it.
1: Yeah, it um, is. I was looking at my schedule. I'm like, my god, and I want to go earlier. I will leave at three in the morning if needed to get there. There's just not a lot of choices to get into smaller towns out in the, in the East Coast.
0: Pittsburgh's so. cool though, man. You do anything fun, or just gonna go out there for work and head back?
1: Yep, fun or excuse me, just work and head back. It's one of those deals where it's for a two-hour meeting that's very important, needs to be done in person, and it's basically two days of travel. <laughs> but you know, yep. that's that that's certain things in this day and age you still can't do over Zoom or Teams. So that this is one of
0: them. That's why we get paid the mediocre bucks, Doug. Yep, Not any sacrifices uh, like that. I
1: like it. Well, speaking of mediocre, this show is not mediocre, Pete, because we bring the heat every week. That was a pretty good transition. Um, And so we'll just uh, roll into your topic. Number one.
0: Yeah, this is an interesting one. Uh, I watched a video from Peter Zion and I followed up by doing some research, some stuff uh, from the usual suspects, mostly um, more right-leaning think tanks. There is a, uh, I'd say it's probably like a five-year effort now by the United States Navy to be doing less of their power projection on the shipping lanes. So we're, we're a little more focused on, I would say, preparing for war or preparing for defense than we were on regular maritime projection. The whole point of the old white fleet that Teddy Roosevelt put out there was to tell the whole rest of the world, you know, F around to find out, I guess. And uh, going all the way back to the old white fleet to now, the idea of having a strong Navy is to protect the waterways to make sure that we are able to export our goods and to let other countries to be able to export to the U.S. market. Our market makes up about a third of global trade, whether it's importing to the United States for consumption or exporting to the rest of the world to keep Americans working. And right now, a lot of the vessel traffic around the world, let's face it, it's not American flag. And a lot more of the vessel traffic is moving energy, energy to places from Russia, um, which we don't support right now, and to China, which again, we don't support right now, on ships that are owned by Chinese companies, which again, we don't support right now. So you have a country like China who is trying to maintain economic dominance by not consuming a lot, also by trying to maintain a lot of exports in a world who is a little shaky on their relationship with them because they haven't done a very good job of trying to maintain a lot of great friendships. That's not exactly, uh, I guess, an equation for success. So the U.S. has said, what's really in it for us anymore? What's in it for us anymore? To maintain these seaways for the benefit of people who really aren't our friends. So we're changing the way that we look at our United States Navy. Um, why would we spend so much money and waste so much time trying to make the, the oceans safe for traffic? It's safe for commerce for people who really don't have it in our best interests, particularly at a time when the Russians are doing everything they can to really be painful and hurt a lot of people that really didn't do anything to them. Why does that matter to us, Doug? Well, it mm-hmm. matters to us because of marine insurance the marine casualty. Those big vessels that are worth tens of millions of dollars are moving tens of millions, sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars worth of energy. So imagine you're a ship owner or you're leasing a ship or you're the person that's moving all that oil and you find out from the folks that are marine insurers, I'm not going to insure your vessel and I'm not going to insure your cargo. That's a big risk. So how do you feel about moving stuff that could be stopped by pirates or could be attacked in a war zone, probably not real good. And that might raise it to a level of risk that might make people think twice, if you're in India or if you're in China about purchasing that product. And I think Doug, that could become a real problem real fast. And I'll be watching that one closely over the beginning of next year. Yeah,
1: very. Yeah, very succinct. You know, the one piece that um, you brought up there at the end, which I think is more notable, is not the assets, right? You get the vessels and and the patrol and the patrolling, right? A lot of that can be done without having a ship. that takes years to build and becomes os- obsolete as soon as it pushes out. Um, but the uh, so so I get that, right? You can control and 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 provide uh, protection uh, where needed and 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 where you want. Without having a vessel on the water, right? Are they needed? Sure. Are they needed in the way that they were in the fifties and sixties in the cold war? Nope. But the one piece that you brought up, Pete, that I had not thought about was the, uh, the pulling back, uh, of the insurance, right? And in the impact that that could have. And I don't know where this is going. This is just a comment, right? I don't know where this could go. Um, is that will the seas become more lawless because the insurance is unwilling to follow the cargo? be part of a part of the cargo hey we don't have as many vessels it's not in our best interest to go out there patrol areas that we don't have friendlies on either side so we're stepping away and oh by the way we're not going to insure the cargo because that's a way that we can have uh, economic sanctions and then what happens to to the seas is it the wild west out there that to me is the the bigger potential holy crap what's going to happen there so The swift, um, you know, the pen is mightier than the sword, so to speak. Um, That may be one way to look at this. But I had not even thought about the insurance piece until you just brought that
0: up. Well, consider this, Doug. You know, we we live in in the military age of hypersonic weapons. And Russia and China have both, you know, they always call in the middle of something, Doug. China and Russia have both. um, They've developed these hypersonic missiles that are so fast that most ship defense systems can't deal with them. Mm-hmm. So, you launch these outrageously fast weapons that move at these hyper speeds that could take out a ship. They could take out a Navy ship. They can also take out a cargo ship. Well, we've built them too. And if you're moving an oil tanker or an LNG tanker and it's going across the ocean, we'll knock it out. Not a big deal. Well, I mean, it's a big deal in naval warfare. But when you're a self-sustaining energy country like the United States, which we can become again very quickly, we don't have to worry about bringing in energy from some other place, do we? Mm -hmm. No, we don't. But if you're Russia or China and you have a real serious deficit about generating your own power, this becomes a problem quick. For us, not so much. And something we learned from the pandemic is the need for us to become self-sustaining again. And I think that um, this could be part of a much broader much deeper understanding about where this country is going in the future. And that is the ability for us in a crisis to be able to manage our own supply chain mm. through that, through NAFTA, through Mexico, through Canada, um, and through our own self-sustaining efforts. So we'll see where it goes by. Yeah. Yeah. Good one. Good topic. All right. So we're shipped. The beauty of this show,
1: Pete, is that we just go on opposite ends of the spectrum with, with some of our topics. And so um, I'm jumping into warehouse and, and real estate. For lack of a better term, and I'm going to try to compare how this was um, after the um, the financial crisis of 2008. So I read uh, just the other day that warehouse construction or warehouse starts, as as it's referred, is at a 10-year low. So people aren't breaking ground and putting big boxes and buildings out there on the in uh, on land anymore. Obviously, the the reasons is interest rates, material costs, labor, uh, and then slow demand that we've talked about on the back half of, um, of the craziness, the post COVID, um, you know, the great, um, uh, the roaring twenties that we've spoken about multiple times, but interest rates are primarily the big reason for that. So it got me thinking that, um, uh, you know, after the, uh, uh, the, the financial crisis in 2008, how the home buying industry, okay, you got real estate. I'm talking about warehouses, but I'm referencing, uh, residential real estate and how um, companies that were building houses, um, uh, individuals that would started companies to build houses, everything just shut down, right? And there was probably eight, possibly ten years, where there was minimal new construction going on with any, um, you know, residential, whether it's single family, multi, multifamily, whatever it was. And then when things started popping, and, and, and you know, pre-COVID, even there is no inventory. Um, there is no inventory. Interest rates come down. Um, the COVID situation, where people were trying to uh, move out to the suburbs and kind of eject from from cities, and the uh, real estate prices just skyrocketed to the point where they haven't really uh, come back down. So my question and thought on this one is: Is that going to happen with warehouse construction and commercial real estate? So I had a friend of mine say, "Nah, here's what's going to happen," and 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 uh, he's a professional in the industry. And I certainly am not related to that. I'm just creating the, the uh, uh, you know, the the example uh, that I just mentioned with, with residential, but he said, what's going to happen is there's going to be infill into these major markets, the gateways, the LA's, Chicago's, Dallas, Atlanta's, the Northeast. If you own a warehouse, that's 30, 40 years old, you're going to be in pretty good shape uh, coming, uh, coming around because people are going to want to infill and what's available right now that I need uh, they're not going to go out into the suburbs, so to speak. They're going to find existing uh, facilities that are that are already, um, uh, are already built. And so it'll be interesting to see um, what will happen. The other piece is that I think second-tier markets, and you and I spoke about this during the port strike when people were saying when L.A. was jammed, how people were going through the Panama Canal, and secondary markets um, on the East Coast were really great, uh, gaining favor. So I think in the warehouse business, Secondary markets um, are going to continue to um, to increase. So it's interesting. My whole point in this one, Pete, is will commercial real estate follow what happened post two thousand eight with the residential real estate? Part of me says, yeah, we're going to be in a bind in four or five years out because people aren't building anything now. Part of me says, I guess we'll be okay. Um, There's plenty of warehouses. We'll just infill and we'll pack in what we already have. But um, the lack of warehouse starts and um, w- dramatic reduction in, in construction with warehousing. We're not going to see it for a handful of years out, but I think there will be some level of implication.
0: I have been listening to a lot of podcasts and a lot of people a lot smarter than me talk about this probably over the last couple of weeks. Seems to be like a topic du jour, man. And, and the, the opinions are so all over the place, you know. You've got people who are saying that when interest rates come down, there's going to be this rush to start building warehousing, um, that there's going to be people who are going to try to take what's been like, like, um, you know, office structures and stuff. How can we convert this to warehousing? I'm like, wow, really? You know, like, just saying like, like office space that's out in, suburbia or office space that's, that's currently you know, zoned someplace, like how can I turn into warehousing? Okay, you know, and then other people who are saying that um, inventory is gonna start to evaporate eventually and because of the way that, that we are in this post-pandemic world, that people have gotten smarter about supply chains and it's not gonna be as necessary. And then I heard this really good argument lately that e-commerce has made warehousing so much more important that that's going to maintain this kind of level that we're at now of this desire to consume warehouse. I was like, that sounds pretty good. You know, Um, man, I got no idea. Like this is, this is, there are so many great arguments about this topic Mm -hmm. that I'm, I'm just in the muck and the mire on this one. The water's so dirty. I think I'm going to need to see when interest rates come down and how people invest in it. I'm going to need to see a little bit of traction on this before I can really get an opinion because I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. And people whose opinions I really respect on this, they all have such different opinions because I really like that, you know, talking about the e-commerce side that really has changed so much about how we manage and what we do with warehousing, you know, and how people need it more than ever in places that we never needed it before. But then I see how, these big behemoth warehouses have become so important in different ways. I'm, I'm just turned around and confused about all of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. it seems like that's, you know, is, am I wrong? Or is big warehousing has just been so profitable for the past, not, not even before the pandemic, people were printing money that had great warehousing.
1: Yeah. Well, but uh, main thing of warehousing, from my opinion, it's a real estate play as well. You own it and you're a service provider. You can really position yourself in a strong If you're just tied to leases, which is where a lot of people are, and our, our uh, company has some ownership in buildings and we lease buildings. Mm -hmm. Um, that's a whole nother, a whole nother deal because the ebbs and flows of the economy can really impact it. But I think, I think the secondary markets are going to be the winners and the beneficiaries of this because, like you said, with the e-commerce, if you want to play in the Amazon space or anything else in the two day shipping that is, um, you know, kind of the standard now. You need to be in Salt Lake City. You need to be in St. Louis, Missouri and things of that nature, um, even Denver, Colorado in, in, in that instance. So I think the third, second and third tier markets are going to really benefit. And the infill, like my friend had indicated, um, the, the the gateways will take care of themselves. But interesting to see, whenever the interest rates come down, is it going to be a building frenzy again or um, or not? But you're right. There's a lot of con- uh, a lot of smart people with different perspectives.
0: Well, I've always go to you for this stuff, Doug. So if you're if if you're equally a little bit turned around on it, I guess it makes me feel a little better about where it is. Yeah, yeah. So
1: cool. Well, I'm going to do the halftime intro because I like yours. I want you to to, to jump on it. My is just a quick bit, uh, uh, a quick snippet. But it's brought to us by uh, Cap Logistics. We can't thank them enough uh, for giving us what I call the soapbox. Uh, every week, we greatly appreciate it. And um, please visit caplogistics.com. So halftime, Pete, both of us have a little bit of a sports theme, but I'll let you go first.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm pulling mine up now because I want to make sure I have, you know, exactly what's going on. I'm I'm really fired up because it's Rugby World Cup. It happens every four years. Rugby's a great sport. It's a lot of fun. And much like the Soccer World Cup, you get a lot of real excited, passionate people watch it unlike World Cups the last couple of World Cups the USA didn't make the tournament because we're really bad right now at 15s 15s is when you have 15 people to a side uh, we're pretty good at sevens right now seven versus seven but 15s is where it's at man that's the you know that's the traditional game and this has been a really great World Cup. So unlike the past years, streaming has allowed us to be able to watch just about every game live as it happens. I think every game live as it happens. So if mm-hmm. you have Peacock or you have Amazon Prime, you can watch every game. Um, and boys have been a great tournament. So the, the Irish team right now has been extremely dominant, as has the host team, France. And England, the nation that created the game, has been excellent. We haven't seen the dominant play of New Zealand, who's sort of like the New York Yankees of rugby. Everybody loves New Zealand because of the Hakka, and most people love Australia as well because of their, uh, I guess, entertaining, passionate, kind of uh, loose, exciting play. But there's teams that people that learn to love rugby, like everyone loves Japan. You know, we love watching Japan because they're the little team that can. And every once in a while, they beat one of those big teams, and, and we all sort of root for them. And what's wonderful about rugby is a lot of these folks, they play on professional teams together. So although... You know, you're playing for your, your host team, your, your, your national team. You might play as of someone in France. You might play with Scott, someone in Scotland on a, on a team someplace else. So they're actually quite friendly with one another. And after the match, you'll see them all getting along. And, um, so they're nasty as hell when they play each other on the pitch. But then after, cause that's kind of how rugby is, you know, we're all very social with one another. If you've never seen rugby, please do watch a game. And it's looking like this could come down to a, one of the best finals that you're ever going to see because the teams that are dominant this year are teams like england and ireland and france and and australia you could very well have some of the final teams being like england ireland england france england um, you know ireland ireland france if you had like france england are you kidding me I mean, these are countries that have been at war for a thousand years. This, 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 could, be, this could be some of the greatest uh, rugby finals ever. The play has been outstanding. It's been positively wonderful to watch. And for those of you who've never seen it before, you can learn the rules in about 90 seconds. There's not a lot to it. And if you love football, you'll love rugby. If you love soccer, you'll love rugby. And if you just like to watch people who are incredibly athletic, you'll love rugby. So game moves quick. You only have to invest about an hour and a half, two hours yeah. to watch a game. Uh, there's no stopping the play. They start, they stop at halftime, they start again. And I think you really enjoy it. So do yourself a favor. World Cup will be in America, I think in about 10 years, eight years. I know it seems like a long way away, but it's not. So please do give it a watch. And because you and Keenan are in Denver, the USA national team is based in Colorado. That's where everybody trains. Um, the national team is there. And I know they didn't make the tournament, but they are very good, particularly at sevens. They're incredible athletes. And um, I'm hoping that next go around they'll be there representing us. They're, um, they're really a really good bunch of dudes too. And just one more thing I'll say, Doug, our women's national team is incredible. Mm-hmm. so uh, if you ever have a chance to watch the women play they are absolute beasts out there they're amazing so do support women's rugby as well and if you have a chance to watch collegiate rugby give that a shout too. that's all i have yeah. to say about
1: that. Yeah. yeah well infinity park is what you're speaking about yes. it's right in it's right in the heart it's in a it's in a uh, location called glendale um colorado you know it's just one big area but it's pretty close to downtown and i have I've been there. It's a pretty amazing facility. So I I know exactly what you're talking about. And the last question I have on this, beat is like, who's the beer sponsor? That's one of the most important. Who is sponsoring a bunch of uh, guys out there just beating the crap out of each other? You got to have a beer afterwards. So who's the Uh, official beer sponsor?
0: I believe this year it's Stella Artois. But here's the funny thing about that, Doug. So France is one of the countries that allows beer consumption during the play. When In England, when you go to a match, they don't serve beer during the match. So you'll go drink before the match and you'll go drink after. Sometimes you can drink at halftime, but they don't allow for consumption during the play. (laughs) Um, France, however, does allow it. When it was in Japan, they did allow it. And the French were not prepared for for the mad consumption. Rugby fans usually play rugby and we are functionally alcoholics there's no other way to put it so you've got at the Stade, Stade de France is massive I think it holds like a hundred thousand people so you have a hundred thousand and they're playing all over France so they're you know in Dijon they're in Lyon they're in Cannes they're everywhere so you have all these rugby fans that are coming out to watch these matches and they are they are drinking beer and the French were not prepared for this so they're running out of beer like halfway through the first half and um, they learned their lesson. So I think throughout the tournament, they've they've gotten smarter about making sure there was enough beer for it. Yeah. But um, France apparently has the the rugby fans have been excellent about behaving themselves. There has not been a lot of bedlam. Unlike rugby uh, soccer World Cups, apparently there's you know there's usually a lot of bad behavior from people who you know there's a lot of bad blood with soccer from what I understand. There's not a lot of bad blood with rugby people people tend to really get along pretty well we don't we don't take it that seriously there's not a lot of nastiness i will say that um when it comes to the the uk fans you know scotland wales England and Ireland, we, they all get along exceptionally well. When Scotland played Ireland over the weekend, Ireland gave them a good beating. Um, but the fans afterwards, because they all pretty much just hate the English when it comes to the Celts, they partied very well. I had a lot of friends of mine FaceTiming me from on Saturday's game. But when they play England, yeah, there could be some blood yeah. after that. But other than that, no, man, it's just a really fun party. I wish I was in France right now. I really wish I was in France. Right
1: yeah. Yeah. Well, I can't see your passion for the game at all in the last five minutes no, no, talking man. about this. It's so. the
0: best. I went, to, I, I went to when it was in the U.K., my, one of my really close friends, Eric, and I went to New Zealand, England together, and it was one of the highlights of my life. So when the World Cup comes to America, I'm going to be taking weeks off at a time to go watch. it. They'll be playing in Colorado. They'll be playing wherever there's a grass football field. Um, you'll be seeing them play. They'll be playing at colleges and it's going to be so good for the sport because Americans mm-hmm. are going to watch. It's gotten very popular here in high schools and in colleges. It's so much safer than American football. You don't see the same injuries. We're very respectful on the pitch. There's only one referee, Doug. There's one wow. rep. So you've got these six foot seven, 280 pound dudes that run like four, six forties. You know I mean? they're they if they, If our football players started playing rugby, we would own that sport. Um, like Tim Tebow would be all globe rugby <laughs> if, he, if he just played rugby, Jalen hurts would be like the greatest of all time. If he just played rugby, but uh, I think people will come and watch it and they'll be like, how have I never watched this sport before? You just got to give it one shot. you yeah? love it. Well, I'm looking
1: forward to it. Maybe I'll catch a, catch an episode or an episode, a match, match. A, on the pitch. I don't know what I'm saying. That's right. All right so, so my, yours, sport- is great,
0: Doug. yours is great. I love yeah. these stories.
1: So my, my, uh, my take is uh, there was the Chicago Marathon this weekend, and I am not a runner, but I certainly know a lot of people that like to travel. And I've heard, so don't get pissed off if you're a runner on this thing, is that the Chicago Marathon is one of the easier marathons to travel to just and, and participate because it's flat, right? There was some um, horrific things that happened a couple years ago when it was really ex- hot, and I think there was a um, handful of people that, uh, that actually died. But as far as marathon goes, I understand it's flat. It's pretty good to travel to. And if it's one of your first marathons, that would be a good a good place to go. But there was this Kenyan, uh, and I'm going to make sure I get his name right. It's Kelvin uh, Kiptum, K-I-P-T-U-M, Kelvin Kiptum from Kenya. Say that three times fast. The dude almost broke two hours wow. to run a marathon. It was two hours and 35 seconds. And it, Again, I'm not a runner, but it's amazing that you could do twenty six miles in just right at two hours. I mean, breaking the two hour mark will happen within the next year. I mean this guy that just he's run three marathons, three right That's it, and he just crushed the world record this past weekend in Chicago and um it's unbelievable. I never thought in looking at the pace that you have to maintain, the conditions. That breaking two hours to run 26.2 miles would ever happen, which um, leads me to just the fact that the, the the human mind over matter, the strength, the passion, that the human body uh, can achieve so many things that we would not think possible. You know, the the um, four minute mile barrier um, that was broken, you know, decades ago in swimming to break a 15 minute um 1500 mile and swimming that got blown away, and it keeps getting faster and faster. It's just amazing to me. And one of the demarcations I think is pretty impressive, even though I'm not a runner, is when we break two minutes or excuse me, two hours to run a marathon, it's going to be like, what are you kidding me? It's going to be unbelievable. So I had to call that out. Even though I'm not a runner, it's impressive and it should be talked about on this podcast.
0: We talk about, we've talked about runners before, like when we talk about the Olympics, just how it's amazing. You know, track and field is so wonderful because it's just the human body against a clock. Mm-hmm. It's awesome. You know, and just there, they're, these athletes are just so incredible what they have to go through. And now with all the drug testing, you know, you just know they're eating well, they're training well, they're taking care of themselves. And you go out there and everything just has to be perfect. And the first thing I thought of when I saw that this morning was you know, when he crosses the finish line, he's like 30 seconds. Are you kidding me? Like what over 26.2 miles? Like what little tiny thing could I have done to just shaved off those 30 seconds? But then like what little tiny things over 26.2 miles did he have to shave to get to that, that number. Mm-hmm. And now he's going to have to spend the next couple more marathons to try to shave that stuff off. It's amazing, man. It's absolutely amazing. And it's, it's inspiring. I think that's why I love sports so much. Is I'll never. I ran a half marathon a couple of years a couple of years ago. It was like ten years ago, in Minnesota. <laughs> yeah. and yeah. Uh, I I don't I don't want to try to remember how long it took me. But me and Bed Bidwell, he's at CH Robinson now. Um, we ran it, you know. And I remember crossing the finish line, my legs locked up at at, at, at like eleven and a half miles. I thought I was going to cry. It hurt so bad. I cramped so bad. But then I, I, I crossed the finish line. I felt great. And you hear about these people who do this stuff. The, the amount of of preparation, the amount of of nutrition and training, someone's going to break it. And then someone's going to do even better. And then that mm-hmm. bar is going to keep going down. You talked about that four-minute mile. My old boss at Expeditors points out that no one thought it was going to be physically possible, like your body would explode or something. And then people, a couple weeks later, I guess, did it even faster. Like the next person did it and the next person did it. Mm-hmm. Someone had to break that barrier before they did it. And I think that's what's so inspiring about it is that there are people out there that are able to and willing to make the sacrifice and to show us just what we can accomplish. I think it's wonderful. You know, I, I went to the Air and Space Museum in D.C. recently, and I stood there in front of Neil Armstrong's moonwalk suit. It was right there. It's right there. And then behind it, you know, it was, quote, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. and. I'm sure Keenan's like, it was all a set, you know, a <laughs> right now, but and you see the Gemini capsule, you see the Apollo capsules, you see Yuri Gagarin's bust that the Soviet Union sent to us. And you just think these are people that they did it, you know. They they did it. And it's inspiring when we think of all the little things that we we try to get through on a day to day basis. These are human beings that did it. I just mm-hmm. think that's beautiful, man. It's beautiful. Yeah. Very cool.
1: All right. Well, let's move on to the second half. Obviously, uh, halftime brought to you by Cap Logistics. I uh, appreciate their support, caplogistics.com. Pete, uh, I open. So, you get the, what's your second one here, brother? You go.
0: Yeah. So, second one. Hey, pat on the back to global trade this week. We're right again. Uh, the World Trade Organization had to readjust their numbers for where they felt the uh, global trade growth would be for 2023. You're wrong they've had to adjust it down by 50%. So yeah. their their number for um, global trade growth was down, they believe it's gonna be 0.8%. Earlier this year in the show, when we were looking at the numbers, we're like, oh, you were, you guys are so wrong. Be ashamed of yourselves with these numbers. What are you all smoking the crack? And uh, it turns out we were right. Um, Global trade growth is way down. A lot of that has to do with our uh, our friends over in China just not able to hit their growth numbers, not able to hit the export expansion numbers that they had set for themselves. Another big part of that, of course, is inflation. Inflation is just kicking people in the behind all up and down the globe. It's not just here. It's everywhere. So the inability for people to consume to the degree that is necessary to expand trade is just a lingering problem and it will remain a lingering problem. So the problem I have with this, Doug, is they've still got these insane numbers for next year. But they're talking about 2024, like inflation's suddenly just gonna go away. Like next year, inflation's just gonna take a holiday. Like, oh yeah, oh, so 2024's still looking great. Um, we're keeping 2024 right where it was because Santa Claus is gonna come and he's gonna deliver to the Fed some magic inter, uh, non-deflationary issue and deflation is going to go away just mysteriously. It's all going to be great. You know, so they haven't adjusted the 2024 numbers or 2025 numbers at all. And that's why I wonder, man, like maybe finally at, you know, 50 something years old, maybe I should just finally admit that all these pro, you know, prognostications that people make are just utter and complete humbug. Mm-hmm. I think it's time we just do it, bud. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, what's the incentive to change things a year and a half out, right? There's the forecast. They threw it out there. I don't want to backtrack quite yet. I mean, you know, the thing that happens, this is unrelated to that topic to some degree, but the speed at which things change and pivot is so fast right now. If you look and, and we, we spoke about the, um, you know, the roaring 20s, the 2020s post-COVID and how that was just, you know, everybody's just eating and gobbling and consuming, and in 1920, that was like seven or eight years before the Great Depression happened, right? And the the roaring 20s of 2020, that was like 18 months, <laughs> right? And things dramatically changed. So what happens in 18 months from now could be just, I don't even know, it could pivot. Things just move so fast that um, providing visions two years out is... Uh, is, is poppycock. Like, what's the who? There's so much that could happen between now and then where 75, 50 years ago, it would take years, a decade to make change. And now it happens within a matter of months. So I, I don't, I, it doesn't surprise me that they're not changing for 2024 or 2025. It's easier to come back and say, oh, things changed a little bit. Now we're going to adjust
0: it. So, how was I supposed to know? How, well, you you take, you take so much pride when your stuff accidentally is right. Yeah. And I mean on, on this show, whenever I speak, you know, I gave a speech last week where I was the first to admit, I mean, there was crap I got wrong of the pandemic. I'll admit it. I didn't know. And mm-hmm. the stuff I got right, you know, I'm I'm not gonna sit there and beat my chest about how brilliant I was. I got crap wrong too. <laughs> I got lucky. What are you gonna do? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. All
1: right. So my Thanks, last man. topic, I'll be uh, quick on this one. And I've I've talked about it a little bit, but I just saw an article about Uber Connect now has a service and I think it's called return a package as basic as that is, but they're getting into the reverse logistics and the e-commerce returns business. Everybody's trying to find the sweet thing. How do we re-engineer the reverse logistics so we can get product back into an area a warehouse or something that can be resold again. And my take on that Pete is there are certain things that absolutely need a fundamental reverse logistics program, high value things, medical science um things of that nature but for the 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 average Joe that drives most of the returns which is I don't know if I want purple, red or blue so I'm gonna buy all three of them knowing full well I'm gonna return two. That don't try to re engineer what's already there. We gotta blow it up and, and 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 totally change it. And my take on this Pete and I've said it a few times is once the product is in market, do not let it leave. Find other ways to sell it, uh, repurpose it, uh, or donate it to some degree, right? I'm not saying you got to push all this Lululemon stuff to uh, um, you know, to, 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 to um, homeless people or things of that nature. But once it's in market, keep it there. Think of creative strategies to, um, to resell it, right? It, it doesn't make sense to take a shirt or a blouse or a pair of pants and move it back to the supply chain with the cost involved the handling the way labor is it's not getting cheaper keep it in market right um and then you got the uber guys and i think it's great i'm i'm, I'm a fan of uber i have nothing bad to say about uber but you're going to show up to return a pair of Lululemon lemon pants and they're just going to give it to you right and they're going to be duct tape in a package and you can't figure out if it's right or wrong is it broken do i have all of whatever i'm supposed to be returning And I got to go pick up some other people. So I'm going to throw it in the back seat or my trunk. And it's going to be two or three days before I get to an area that is uh, convenient to return it. So I I think they just, they, we need to blow up the concept of a reverse logistics for general um, uh, merchandise that's purchased. And I will say that Amazon and Kohl's, in my opinion, have come up with a brilliant strategy where you can take your Amazon returns to a Kohl's store. They basically click a couple of buttons. They scan a barcode that you print from your home, and then they give you a fifteen dollar or fifteen percent, twenty percent credit. And when you walk out the front of the store, because the the returns is always in the in the very back by the bathrooms, you got to walk through the entire store. You're going to buy something, so the um, uh, you know the initial mile, if you will, on the return is handled by the consumer. They're physically taking it somewhere, um, and that that's a brilliant idea. Um, and I think there's more creativity of how do you keep stuff in market, but my whole point is that Uber's trying to help an existing model. What needs to happen is a disruptor to come in and change it. And my solution is keep the product in market once it gets there. Do not attempt to pull it back out to resell it because you're just throwing away money. Um, so kudos to Uber for coming up with uh, with the solution, but uh, we got to blow this thing up and really think about how we manage returns in a different way.
0: Doug, how dare you? First of all, I mean, oh, you know,
1: and hold on, Pete, I didn't use the term BOPUS either. So we'll, we'll, we'll keep it at that.
0: So you know, how dare someone who doesn't work for McKenzie or Boston Consulting Group, you know, how dare you speak such words? You know, I mean, what were you thinking? Yeah, uh, you know, you, you've you've just stopped some large consulting group from charging uh, a dot com company three million dollars to um, create 500 PowerPoint slides to say something so obvious. Um, going to a Kohl's department store and dropping off your stuff while you're on your way to Target to pick up your, you know, your toilet paper and your eggs or whatever is very convenient. Or when you're going to Whole Foods using the, they have these machines now where you just, you hit your scanner on your phone. They give you a label, you put it in a bag, you stick it in their little drop box, and you're on your way. I think that's meeting the the customer halfway. It's a little bit of my time. It's a little bit of your technology. Everybody wins. You need to have a little skin in the game when you're the consumer and you bought something. Mm, I think that's fair. I think that's fair, okay? And there needs to be convenience, which that is, but there needs to be an understanding, sort of like a contract between the consumer and the seller that we need to be both a little inconvenienced. I think that's fair. Okay. Um, And the idea of all these companies now, like you said, Lululemon, Lululemon has a lot of, of, um, I guess you call them like um, outlet stores, you know, all over the country now, that the ability for us to clean, disinfect products, put them back out on the shelf relatively close to where they were returned and sell them at a discount so that you're actually making money on that return. It's exactly what you talked about. Mm -hmm. What's the problem with that? There is absolutely nothing wrong with us trying to find a way to make this resale profitable for the company that got it to you in the first place and then gave you a chance to see whether or not you liked it. The consumer needs to take some responsibility for the fact that e-commerce is so convenient. Uh, maybe not popular with my customers, but you know, uh, at the same time, it's probably not so popular with the consumer as well. Got to yeah. find some middle ground, pal. Yeah, it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting. all right. Well, with that, um, some great topics this week and a hell of a halftime. We want to thank everyone who watches the show and listens to the show, particularly those of you that tell all your friends and keep our subscriber numbers up, and especially to our friends at Cap Logistics for uh, their support, financial and otherwise, of the show. Really do appreciate it. And that's going to be that for Global Trade This Week. Thanks for Keenan back in the booth, keeping it all going. Thanks for my uh, co-host, Doug Draper. And we'll see you all again next week for another exciting edition of Global Trade This Week. There you you go. That's a good one. See you guys. Thank you. Bye.